Welcome to the Political Economy Forum's podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, Election Security and the Fate of Democracy in the 21st Century. I'm James Long, the host of the series and Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. This episode marks the inaugural podcast in the series, where today we will address the topic of democracy's backsliding in the international environment. This is the title of an article published in Science Magazine in September 2020 by today's special guest, Susan Hyde. Susan is a professor of political science in the Avice M. St. Chair in Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Susan is well-placed to discuss election security and democracy. She is recognized as a global expert and has published many papers on international election observation, election fraud, and democracy promotion, including her book, The Pseudo-Democrats' Dilemma, Why Election Observation Became an International Norm. Her research on election observation includes serving on missions in Afghanistan, Albania, Indonesia, Liberia, Nicaragua, Pakistan, and Venezuela. We are lucky to have Susan here today to talk about recent trends of democratic backsliding in the world today, threats to election security, the roles that citizen activism in the international community have played supporting or undermining democracy, and her thoughts on what the U.S. can learn, from, uh, can learn about its own elections from her work in other countries. Hello, Susan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, James. Thanks for having me. Great. So, Susan, your article in Science is titled Democracy's Backsliding in the International Environment. Why don't you start by telling us what you mean by democracy's backsliding? Thank you, James. Yes, uh, this is a term that has a few synonyms that are going around. And so democratic backsliding, democratic erosion, and autocratization, which does not roll off the tongue as easily, uh, are all being used to refer to basically the same class of phenomenon, most of which are incremental changes away from representative democracy and toward authoritarianism. So far, what we've been seeing is mostly incremental, as I just said, but democratic backsliding can involve a country that was previously thought to be fully democratic, transitioning all the way to authoritarianism. So what does that look like on the ground? What, what's an example of you know, going from being pretty democratic to having some sort of backsliding? Well, there's a lot of examples, unfortunately, in the world today. So one of the ones that uh, many of us are familiar with took place in Venezuela. For a long time, Venezuela was a, thought to be a, a very democratic country, one of the most democratic countries in South America. And over many years, a number of things started to happen. Um, the media became less free. There were challenges to voting rights of a number of citizens. Um, there were efforts to bias the, the judiciary in ways that I think uh, ended up being consequential. This has happened in countries, Poland and Hungary are often put forward as examples, and it can involve very hard to document things, which I think is one of the challenges that, that is important to understand about backsliding. It can be hard to observe right when it starts to happen. It can be hard to observe as it's happening. Some governments around the world have an incentive to try to conceal it, and it can involve undermining the authority of the election administration. It can involve making it more difficult for people to vote. It can involve making elections less competitive without getting rid of them entirely. There's a lot of phenomenon that have been documented as part of democratic backsliding, and it's not something that has a, a definitive list of, of criteria. It's really a broad set of changes that can happen within a country that end up uh, making a country less democratic than it was previously. So is this a new thing in, a, in the global context, or has this been going on for some time? 
So globally, um, as students of comparative politics already know, there's been waves of transitions both towards democracy and away from democracy. And the current era that we're in is something that's been going on for a while. Uh, some of the more prominent efforts to do document democratic backsliding say that it's been going on for around 10 years or so. And I think that we've certainly seen cases of democratic backsliding that, that happened in previous eras, but the current thing that's happening is distinct in part because some of the countries that are experiencing democratic backsliding are very wealthy, long established democracies, including the United States and India. In what way do you think the United States and India have democratic backsliding? Well, <laughs> um, I will say that I'm, it's okay to be controversial too. Yeah, so. I, I'm not. I'm not an expert in um, in either the U.S. or India, which is why I was laughing a little bit because I uh, seem to have a knack for for uh, setting myself up to have to say more about countries that um, are not the ones that I've studied studied most intensively. But I do think that uh, people are very worried about efforts to undermine free media. People are very worried about efforts to undermine courts. People are worried about uh, efforts to target specific classes of voters and with uh, efforts to disenfranchise them or make it more difficult for them to vote. Um, and so those are those are all things that anybody that knows the history of, of either of those countries um, can can say with confidence. It's not the first time any of those things have have been attempted, but the combination of what's happening in, in, in the U.S. and India, and, and especially in the U.S. right now, the, the real embrace of uncertainty about whether one of the most basic minimalist definitions of democracy will be met in the United States come November is, is striking. So that, that, that basic definition that I'm referring to is if the incumbent loses, will they peacefully transfer power to the other party? That's something we think is a, a pretty procedural minimalist definition of democracy that uh, the current president of the United States has been questioning in recent days and years. Okay, so this is, so you're talking about elections, and this is great because the title of the podcast is neither free nor fair. And I thought you would be the perfect person to define what the, what is a free and fair election. I mean, we read it in the news. You know, the Car Jimmy Carter is known for sort of being out there and saying, you know, I deputize this election as being free and fair, or neither free nor fair. But what does that really mean, a free and fair election? You know, I'm going to challenge the question a little bit because uh, one of the people who I know we both know, Eric Bjornland, uh, is a, a, a very influential person in this field of, of democracy promotion and of supporting uh, elections around the world. His 2004, I believe, book is called Beyond Free and Fair. And I think that for a while, this was thought to be something that we could boil down, like either an election, there's like four options, right? A free and fair election, election that had neither, or an election that had one of those two components. More and more, what we've seen in trying to judge the quality of elections is a, a desire to move towards elections that are judged by the standards. Let me back up for a second. You can judge elections by a number of different standards. Uh, so free and fair is one that's easily digestible. And I think a lot of people understand that there is something to that phrase. But when we think about the broader ways in which we can judge election quality, we can think about elections being held to some sort of ideal type standard. We can think about elections compared to other sorts of similar countries or even elections in that same country in previous years. And, and the standard that I think is now more common um, in, in the circles that I travel in 
is to hold a country to its own laws and to its international commitments, which are not the same across countries. Maybe too obvious to say that, but I like the title of your podcast, but I do think we've moved away a little bit from the the really black and white, uh, either this was a good election or not. And what that does is it opens up the ability uh, for lots of people to understand exactly what the problems were, how they influenced the election, and what the remedies might be to those types of problems going forward. So it's gotten just a lot more specific and a lot more gray in, in some ways. So tell me if you think this is wrong. When I when I think of free, and I don't remember where I learned this from, and it probably <laughs> may have it may have been either you or Eric Bjornland. Um, <laughs> but I think of free as sort of being the aspect of a democracy that allows for competitiveness um, and allows for you know you know multiple parties to compete um, and allows sort of representation of the uh, electorate. And then I typically think of fair as kind of the stuff that you. I mean, you and I maybe focus on more in our work, which is, you know, was there fraud? Was there rigging? Was the, does the outcome actually reflect uh, the will of the voter? Things like that. Mm-hmm. More procedural things, more um, things that are kind of, you know, based around the count and, and how do we actually get a winner? Yeah. Is that the is is that an okay way to think about that or yeah a... I think you know one is really about participation and access and 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 one is about um, the the procedural stuff as you were just saying I think very generally but many people just want the answer was it free and fair or not and I think for many elections around the world uh, what you really have is some problems and then you have to make some sort of assessment about whether those problems were sufficient to uh, lead you to question either the outcome of the election or something more fundamental about the quality of the process. Well, and I think one of the things you're touching on too is you can get tripped up a little bit if you're too obsessed with these categories as, mm-hmm. as aggregating to something that gives you the right answer. Because I was thinking as you were talking, I mean, the United States obviously I think does meet the free standard. You know, democ- there are mo- more than one parties can compete and and it seems like the competitiveness of the election is not really challenged in the U.S. I, I would argue maybe the same thing about India, but it's really the fairness or the the procedural or the outcome that people are really worried about right now. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that may be true for a lot of countries, where I mean, you know, absent obvious authoritarian breakdown of of going after and targeting specific candidates or parties, but it seems like a lot of countries get out of the gate with free, but then maybe fair is where they're a little bit stunted. Yeah. No, I think that that's that's very plausible. Although when I, I the, the thing that I'm I'm stumbling over just a little bit, just for us to have kind of a debate about this, is I think free might also have, at least in my mind, have something to do not just with parties being able to access. I think I'm thinking it in terms of maybe the, the sort of Robert Dalian version of voters being able to have access to the process in a in a somewhat equal opportunity sort of way. Yeah, uh, which is is influenced by the fair part, but. Um, I do think that some of the the free part might have something to also in my mind to do with voter access to participate. Okay, okay, so so then voter suppression would actually degrade the free part for perhaps the U.S. or attempts um, to. Uh, yeah. Yes, even though I'm rejecting our use of these categories, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you forced me to use them. Yes, um, I think that that would um, the the voter suppression and the yeah. um, the efforts to demobilize and even uh, make it significantly more difficult for certain classes of people or certain people living in certain parts of the country to vote. One thing that I thought was interesting about your piece, which made it really timely in my mind, is one of the things that you do, and it it actually was a nice reminder for me, is, is kind of go through how important the international community has actually been in supporting elections around the world, like international organizations, 
um, even countries bilaterally supporting each other. And this sort of agreement after the end of the Cold War that, you know, democracy was the way that states were going to be, you know, be in the modern world and democracy was going to sort of be the standard to which every country either wanted to or needed to aspire to be a part of the sort of international order. Um, but you talk about the, the growth of democracy promotion after the Cold War, but then you sort of talk about also as well that the international community over the last 10 years seems less interested in supporting elections. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if you could sort of chart that and what that has meant and, and what that actually looks like. And, you know, is this necessarily a bad thing? Yeah, it's hard because I think uh, that it's a very, it's, it's a great question. It's one that I feel like the answer to that question might be incredibly nuanced. And I've thought about trying to do a bit more concrete research on exactly this topic, because I th- do think that um, the answer is not as straightforward as some people might might want. I think there's an easy version of this, which is that democracy was a, an imperialist tool, uh, you know, it was used to bludgeon countries into trying to adhere to the U.S. agenda we only supported it when we liked the outcome. The U.S. government engaged in all kinds of hypocrisy in supporting democracy, but I think that glosses over, uh, you know, and it's good to get rid of that hypocrisy. It's good to get rid of that interference in the governments and in the politics of other sovereign states throughout the world. In many ways, I'm sympathetic to that position, but um, in, in a lot of ways, I think that my position on, on, on the topic has become a little bit more complicated over time. And what I mean by that is that the way I see it, and a lot of this is hard to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, so it's more my intuition than something that I think everyone would would agree the evidence is crystal clear on, but I, I do think that there's a reason why we saw <laughs> such a clustering over time and space in the diffusion, not just of elections, but of multi-party competition to some degree, even when it was limited. And even when those multiple political parties were never actually allowed to win. And I, I think that there were a lot of leaders around the world who perhaps adopted or became more open to adopting democratic institutions, not because they were really interested in leading their country to democratization, although many of them clearly were, but because they felt as though they would be better off in the international environment and looked upon more favorably by more powerful actors in the international environment if they were at least plausibly democratic. Many of them, of course, were not fully fledged democracies. And so I think the reason why this question is so difficult to answer is sort of because that pressure, that international pressure that led some countries to adopt at least the form, if not the substance of democratic institutions, who otherwise wouldn't have necessarily had that experience, is that it's, it's very hard to nail down what the outcomes of those experiences are. So on the one hand, you could have leaders who were less repressive overtly than they otherwise would have been because they were trying to play this game of looking and acting like a democracy. On the other hand, you have a lot of people who are living under what their government is calling democracy with really unclear effects, right? They're not necessarily getting the, all of the benefits of democratic governance, but they may be having to go through the rituals of democracy anyway. And I don't know that we have a really clear understanding of, of which is better. But in terms of your question, so you asked a kind of big question, so feel free to interrupt me, James, if you, if you want to get a word in here. But um, going back to the, the backsliding, my, my general interest in thinking about this has to do with 
what I was just talking about. If you think that international pressure contributed to the global diffusion of democratic institutions, and I think the evidence for that is pretty compelling, then if you reduce international pressure for democracy, you've changed the environment such that you might influence how many countries are feeling the need to continue looking and acting democratic. What I've noticed, and, and something I was, I was sort of surprised by, is that there really aren't any countries that have stopped having elections as of 2019. This is something mm -hmm. that I, I keep expecting some countries to just drop elections entirely, and that might be because there's authoritarian elections are beneficial to elites in ways that maybe they are willing to continue with them absent international pressure. But I do think that, that figuring out whether what the consequences are of this international pressure and what the consequences are of this change in international pressure requires you to really dig in what those leaders would have been doing if absent the international pressure for democracy and what the legacies are for citizens and for maybe other entities within states of having lived for some period of time under a hybrid regime. Well, so what, okay, so what then specifically does the international community do when they, when we say they support elections in a country, what does that mean specifically? Like, what are they actually doing? So uh, this is something that I'm sure I know well that you could answer this question as well or, or better than I can. But when international actors are supporting democracy around the world, I really mean that in a very broad sense when I talk about it in the piece. So there is a specific class of things that they're doing that's labeled democracy assistance. And this includes international election observation. It can include working with political parties to professionalize them, to help them think about um, how they might become better at playing the game of democracy if they're not yet accustomed to it. Sometimes it involves actually paying for elections. Uh, it can involve media training. It can involve uh, a whole host of things that are really designed to try to increase the ability in, in a sort of technical sense of a country to hold democratic elections and to democratize more generally. It can include funding and organizing uh, multi-party debates. The list is very long, so I can I can go into sp more specifics, but I feel like it's kind of a boring, boring list to go through extensively. Uh, they're willing to try all kinds of things that they think might um, be able to support democracy in other countries around the world. But I also think that it's important that leaders in the world have historically, especially in the U.S. and in Europe and in a number of other prominent democracies around the world, have been very vocal at least for the most part since the end of World War II, in saying positive things about other democracies and talking about other democracies as though they are more allied, they are part of the same club, there are benefits associated with being in that club. And so that is also, in my mind, part of democracy promotion. It can include more favorable terms of trade, it can involve maybe a greater likelihood of getting a, a White House state dinner or something like that. There can be all sorts of intangible benefits associated with it. Um, but that is also something that has changed really dramatically pretty recently. Yeah, and one thing, I, I don't know if you've had this experience in the countries when you've been an international election observer, but one of the things that I often hear from Americans is sort of critical of international election observation, which is, you know, why, why is the United States or why are you, James, wasting your time observing an election in Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. Are Afghans ready for democracy? The Afghans want democracy. Right. And, 
it's always occurred to me that one of the benefits of international observation is actually telling citizens that, you know, that the world does care about them, that the world does want them to achieve their aspirations. I've, I've, I don't know a lot of people who reject democracy in all the countries I've been to. I, I, I pretty consistently people say they do. Maybe they're lying. I don't know. But it's always seemed to me that even if the elites are able to to rig things, or even if the United States kind of bungles something in the communication strategy around, you know, how they sort of, you know, whether they thought the election was free and fair or not, just sort of telling citizens of other countries that they matter a great deal to the world always seemed to me to be sort of a an important piece to this. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that um, I share your sentiment. So if I, I, I've talked to many individual citizens in many countries in the world who would much rather live under democracy than authoritarianism. I have had a number of students who have grown up in places that are not democratic and are perfectly happy with it. I will say that in general, I don't think that they're necessarily representative of the poorest parts of their countries that they're coming from mm -hmm. um, and often have a bit of a privileged view about what life is like for everyone in their country. Uh, it's easy to find leaders who are benefiting from leaders and their cronies who are benefiting from authoritarianism, who are willing to talk about all of the problems with democracy. It's a lot harder to find individual citizens who, who feel that way. And in terms of you know, wasting time, Afghans might not be ready for democracy. Uh, one of the pieces that I quoted in the the review essay that, that, that we started this conversation with, the democracies backsliding in the international environment, is this essay by Amartya Sen shortly after, I believe, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And one of the things that, that he talks about in that piece is that there's no such thing as the people being fit for democracy. You know, people become fit through democracy and that the process of participation in democratic politics is the thing that makes you a good democratic citizen. I, I think that's an interesting idea. Obviously, it's kind of hard to, to look at. I definitely saw things happening in Afghanistan that made me scratch my head and say, well, what could we do? What, what could be done differently when, when so many people just um, have so little of, of, of what they would need to make an informed choice about or to even know what a choice is? Who might be innumerate, you know, who, who really lack uh, a lot of education. But I, I think in my, in my heart, I am kind of a, a Martia Sen supporter in in this, right? That it's it's not it's it's like not for us to say that anyone is not fit for democracy. And if people, if countries invite international observers to their elections, there's an important role that that can play. Yeah, I like that phrasing of it because I I agree that it's the reverse is true. It's not for us to say who isn't ready for democracy. Um, and and so I that way of phrasing it is is really good. And I also think Americans forget their own history with democracy. And Americans are not always good small d Democrats. And America mm -hmm. has not always, you know, lived up to its own democratic ideals. So I think a lot of it too is just sort of this idea. I mean, at least until recently, that the United States knows how to do all this. And if other people aren't doing it well, well, it's just because they don't want to do it or they don't care or it doesn't matter mm -hmm. to them uh, mm -hmm. or they don't aspire to it. Mm -hmm. It's been out for a couple of years, but I finally bought and read uh, Adam Jorsky's book, Why Bother with Elections? I think it was published in 2018. And I think it's just this wonderful, condensed, general audience summary of a lot of this, right? And in one of the things he's very clear about in the book is just that a lot of times people's problems with elections and democracy is that they think it will solve all of societal problems, society's problems. They think that elections will solve um, all of uh, society's problems. And 
uh, he's very clear that you know that's really not what they're supposed to do in even in in expectation what they can do is move violent societal conflict into nonviolent societal conflict and maybe even if there's still violence they can reduce the amount of violence or focus it around a particular period of time and i think those ideas are are pretty powerful one of the one of the topics of the podcast is election security and you know being on the ground in so many countries observing elections i'm i'm curious to know what you think of as sort of the kind of ongoing or emerging threats to election security. And I guess what I mean by election security is not kind of, are there elections writ large and are they competitive, but more specific tactics that we, that you see might be used, you know, now kind of emerging to really fundamentally alter the uh, outcome of an election in unfair ways. The, the one that seems to be sort of maybe not entirely new, but this, this, the magnitude of the problem has just gotten completely out of control is uh, disinformation and the ability to counter disinformation. So that is, I think, one thing that, that seems problematic in many countries and combined with the sort of personalization of everyone's media environment such that you never have to actually view objective sources about anything of you send yourself down that that path. I, I do feel like that's something that's a problem in a lot of countries. Um, in terms of all of the things that have been used to manipulate elections, of course, are still on the table. Um, I do think for some period of time, a lot of leaders had the incentive to manipulate elections more covertly, and many of them still do. But I am concerned that uh, there's a new opening to manipulate elections with with force, with repression, um, obviously tools that have been around for a very long time, but but that no longer are going to carry the same probability of consequences that that I think were was potentially holding some leaders in check. Um, we also have to worry about uh, external threats to the, the voting and counting processes, um, external threats in, in other ways. Uh, we just had uh, Dove Levin out for a book talk. He was talking about the history of foreign interference. Obviously, there's there's not that many things that are completely new, I don't think. But in some cases, the the ways in which they're new or the ways in which they're being used or the ways in which certain countries are having to worry about these things is on a scale that we just haven't seen before. I, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that, though, James. Do you think there's really new things out there? I think you're right. Um, I'm reading this new book, Rigged, by David Scheimer, where he actually goes through the history of U.S. Well, he starts with the history of U.S. influence in other countries, and he actually starts with the U.S. influence in Italy right after World War II, um, because the U.S. went on to contribute a lot to political parties in in allied countries after World War II in Europe because um, communist parties were so popular, and so. In France and in Italy, once they brought back competitive elections, the United States was interested in, in sort of making sure the communists didn't win. And then, of course, you know, you get Chile in the 1960s and then mm-hmm. sort of more perhaps nefarious forms of uh, U.S. covert action in these countries. But, but this book is specifically looking at uh, foreign election interference. And he also looks at the Soviet side, how the Soviets would fund communist parties and the rest mm-hmm. of it. And one of the things he said that you, that you said, which I think is not new, is disinformation. I mean, I think we think of disinformation as being something with social media, but the United States and the Soviets were placing, you know, were placing fake things in newspapers and on radio uh, during elections uh, for decades mm-hmm. uh, before the internet. 
And that that resonated with me. I think maybe the difference today is like what you said, which is that we have our own kind of individualized media environments now. We don't necessarily share media environments, but still foreign actors were able to, you know, weaponize information or place place false information in hopes of swinging uh, voter sentiment ahead of an election. And then, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you can hack an election if you think of hacking as being, you know, a computer scientist in another country, literally hacking into a technological platform that is, you know, holding voter registration information or, or actually counting ballots. But you can hack things by just, you know, stealing a ballot box or just by changing tallies in other ways. And that's been going on for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think you're right that maybe the magnitude is different now and perhaps the consequences for being caught are being reduced. But it seems like the methods themselves aren't particularly new. Yeah, I I think I'd agree with that. I think the other thing that's on my mind is just whether um, the media environment that has been supportive of democracy is is being altered fundamentally in a way that intersects with that question, which is, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the 1950s, late 1940s in Italy or something like that, we, there may have still been newspapers that most people would see on the newsstand. Right, that that there were there was a sense that people were looking at, and I don't I don't really know Italian politics, so again I'm getting here, getting getting myself in trouble. But you can at least for a while we've been able to count on there being some sort of objective or centrist or trusted source of information about this stuff. Right, people could find out, oh hey, the U.S. is trying to influence this election by planting this. Um, ad in in these in these newspapers, or the U.S. is trying to swing this by bringing suitcases of cash, or or whatever. It could be exposed. And and the thing mm-hmm. that I'm a little bit concerned about now is just I don't know the degree to which that type of information is going to get to voters across the political spectrum in a whole bunch of countries around the world. Again, because of this siloed media environment, and because or personalized media environment, and just the distrust that is that is growing. Um, for even journalist, uh, journalistic sources that I think are credible, but the, the, it's, it's now common um, as, as a strategy to try to undermine democracy, to try to, to undermine them as well. But whose fault is that? I mean, isn't that ultimately the voters' fault? I Maybe. Mean, <laughs> the, the, the way we consume news and the way that it's been commodified to make it um, profitable. If there are Russian trolls putting out fake stories on and fake stories on Facebook and Americans read those and click them and you know retweet them yeah. or, or like them, it's Americans' fault for believing it. It's Americans' fault for then if it does or doesn't influence their vote choice. That's yeah. not Putin's fault, right? So where do we place right. the blame with that type of misinformation? If you're if you're allowing your media environment or your your political information environment to only be people that you know on Facebook. And you don't read the New York Times or you don't read the Washington Post or nonpartisan news. Mm-hmm. You know, what What can you do about that other yeah. than blame the voter? <laughs> I think that there's definitely something to that. I do feel like there was a technological shock that um, made some of that steeper uphill climb. But I, I, I'm with you in spirit. <laughs> I just don't know if that's that's going to solve any of the problems. Yeah, and it may not. And I think um, one of the things is, you know, the the spread of disinformation. I mean, in answer to your question, too, is for Americans, I think the disinformation aspect in their own election and the hacking aspect in their own election only really came about or came to light in 2016 for most Americans. Um, But it had gone on and it has gone on in other countries for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I, I observe elections in Kenya and, you know, Kenyans have really perfected the use and the art of social media before Americans have. And they're, they're very good on Twitter and Facebook and other things. And so I sort of see them as a little bit ahead of the curve on this, but they sort of, you know, citizen activists would kind of take a, a really important role of, of trying to call something fake news when it was fake news, trying to point out if it wasn't in one of the mainstream newspapers or it was obviously a, a photo that was faked and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and they were doing this before, you know, the, the 2016 election in the United States. But there doesn't, I mean, maybe one of the issues in the United States is there doesn't seem to be a lot of mobilization around kind of providing that public good of, hey guys, this is fake news. I mean, we either sort of blame the private companies or we blame other people or maybe we blame ourselves, but there doesn't seem to be sort of a, uh, that activist role of nonpartisan journalists or civil society coming in and saying, look, all of these photos are fake. This this is obviously fake news. Right. Yeah. And some of them definitely take take off and become memes. I did once hear, this was in advance, I believe it was in advance of the 2016 elections. I went to some kind of Um, conference in which I heard a statistic that I should probably look up before citing here, but I'm going to just go ahead and spill it, um, which is that uh, when you're talking about some of the types of disinformation, it's, it's produced without humans having to do anything, right? It's basically entirely automated. And so you can have a a scale of content being produced, for example, on, on YouTube, that is orders of magnitude greater than any team of humans that is in any way like possible mm. to come up with that might might plausibly work on that could possibly review right mm. so to the in the technology at that point i don't know if it's progressed since then but the technology at that point to sort of catch and filter these types of clips that were basically produced by um taking taking pieces of of real news integrating them with things that were just falsified but but all you know using something a process that was that was not being run directly by humans it was very much automated um it's just like on a scale that journalism can't deal with um and that even citizen activism can't deal with so i don't I think so, but maybe the, the the technology is now caught up. But that statistic, when I heard it, like that, that I was pretty depressed for several weeks after that. I think. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it's worse. I mean, it's it's got to be worse now than it was then yeah. too. So. I mean, technolo- te- technological developments could deal with that at some point. It was just that, you know at the time that I learned it, maybe they already have, but um, they had not gone far enough to be able to sort of auto detect falsehoods. Um, and so, unless that has happened, I, I think I'm I'm still concerned. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a difference between um, asking media houses to play by rules that have been, you know, ethics and rules that have been developed in, in media and journalism for decades and decades, and then asking private companies that are social media sites that are not media companies, but basically have become platforms for media, mm-hmm. um, which are still trying to sell a product, which aren't, you know, aren't necessarily responsible for protecting democracy or, or anything else. But that is where the threat is coming from, is across that, not from them, but across their platform. Right. And it's just a very tricky thing to think about. You yeah. know, how do you, what, what is their role? How do you deal with it? And, you know, how does that, like you said, affect what citizens know and what they're doing? And is there, I mean, is it, is the technology so advanced that there's really no hope? Or mm-hmm. does the technology just need to advance more to, you know, outpace whatever the bad actors are going to do with it? 
Yeah, it's tough in part because I think uh, a lot of the way we transmit information now is based on individual attitudes and, and likes and dislikes and things that really feed into our, our own desires to confirm <laughs> our, our own confirmation bias and the way that affects <laughs> affects our lives. But um, I do also think that there's really something, um, I'm, I'm now thinking about the comment you made earlier about whether it's voters' fault um, that we went down this this path. And I think it sort of is, but there's also this issue that now everyone is, it's, it's pretty hard, as we know, to fact check every piece of information you encounter in your life. And I think that sometimes immediately something has the ring of truth to it, you're interested in it, you share it. That That's how some of this stuff takes off, right? It's not a bunch of bad actors um, mm-hmm. necessarily who are involved in the spreading of information. It's the, the, those who initiate it that are maybe the bad actors. And in that process, I, I think now that everyone has the ability to share information so widely and that those things can really snowball into just enormous um, memes that touch hundreds of thousands or millions of people very quickly based on interest, not based on expertise. I, I'm not that big of an elitist, I think on many levels, but this role of expertise in validating political information, I, there's something that's been lost in a lot of a lot of places. And I think that's that's too bad. It's hard for individual journalists to keep up with it. And I think it might be destructive to democracy more generally around the world. So one one of the things you say in the piece that is helpful for democracy, although you you leave a little bit of a question mark um, about its future, is the role of citizen activism and mobilization in pressing for you know democratic transition, but also keeping politicians accountable. So you you mentioned pro democracy movements in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and I was thinking of the protest around elections or electoral corruption recently in Belarus and Ukraine, and. You sort of point out that, you know, democracy is not always top down. It's not always elites. It's not always institutional bargains and things like that. Citizens play a, a pretty important role. But you sort of in the piece also say you're not really sure what that's going to look like going forward. You know, and, and I was interested in kind of what that tension is in activism in the future in terms of supporting democracy. So to, to start with the, the good news, I think citizen activism and citizen activism in support of democracy is one of the more powerful forces that we can think about. All countries are populated by citizens and those citizens can have an enormous effect when they're able to overcome collective action problems and other things like that. Uh, we've seen it again and again. We've seen it before there was the internet. We've seen it uh, going very far back historically. Uh, it's clearly one of the more import, important forces that we can think about in politics. The reason I guess I'm a little concerned um, is that, and, and this is something I'm just beginning to think about. So I did include some thoughts about it in this piece you're referencing, but it's also something that I'm still in the early stages of of really developing my own my own take on. Uh, one of the, the the data points that I that does make me concerned is the increasing ability of many governments in the world to surveil their citizens in a way that's just way cheaper than it has ever been before. And so that surveillance and that ability that engage in targeted repression, it's just very different from what we saw under Stalin or something like that, you know, where you had to Mm -hmm. develop uh, individuals who could infiltrate your, the the sort of people that you found uh, or you suspected might be engaging in subversive acts against your your regime, you had to invest in that technology and then you had to get tons and tons of people to uh, participate in the act of repression. And to some extent that's that's true, 
But I have seen some things, including a, a recent piece a few years ago by um, Jan Lupu, another UCSD alum, uh, who uh, was was really pointing out that there's there's some evidence that the marginal cost of repression has been declining, and when you combine that with the increasing ability to surveil citizens, I just don't know how that's going to affect the ability of these citizen movements to overcome the desire by governments to not be influenced by these mass movements against them. And and added to that is that the international community is no longer coming in with as much support. So I do think this has been something that's been a source of both covert and overt support for democracy, um, especially uh, from the end of the Cold War up until at least 2010 and, and probably 2015. I, I think that a lot of these pro-democracy movements were receiving international support. And I know there's lots of conspiracy theories about George Soros, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is just that uh, the, the type of stuff that Valerie Bunce and Saren Wolchuk have written about very persuasively, I think, in which there's just strategies for protest movements to learn from each other uh, in a very organic way. We look at the, the diffusion of, of nonviolent protests that, that have been so influential and that Maria Stepan and, and Erica Chenoweth have been prominently documenting and talking about in, in the last few decades. And so I just I want to believe that they're going to still be able to overcome this, but those are the reasons why I am still questioning why why I'm still concerned. Then if you add to that the possibility that China, Russia, or other emerging power autocracies will come in on the side of the more repressive governments and, and prop them up and give them technology and give them techniques to use against citizen movements, then I think you can feel even more pessimistic. One of the other things you say, or I, I'm paraphrasing, is you know, one of the reactions to certain actions by populations could just kind of be a shrug. You yeah. know, oh, they rigged the election. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that that sort of spark to mobilize. I mean, maybe it's because certain people have become inured to it. Maybe they don't care. Maybe it's just they're misinformed or, or you know, they, they think the, the cost of protest and uh, given a repressive reaction could be so great that that it sort of looks like a shrug but really it's a cry or a frown but that made me very cynical although i think it's very possible yeah i think that the conversation that i had when i was writing that section with um, the editor on this piece and you know with a few other friends i was sort of debating it debating putting it in was just that it does seem kind of partisan <laughs> like those who are shrugging <laughs> seem to be more likely to be members of certain types of political parties than others and Historically, the defense of democracy in, in specific countries around the world has been a, a, an issue that crosses multiple political parties, right? It has been something of a, of, of a uniting issue uh, across people of uh, citizens uh, of all walks of life. And of course, there's always, you know, the, the elite or the, the kleptocrats or the, those who are resistant to change more generally. But one of the things that's interesting about that is that some of those strategies of raising doubts about democracy, I think, are also diffusion, diffusing around the world and are being adopted by, by political parties, which is an interesting phenomenon, mm. one that I think uh, maybe deserves a little bit more close academic attention. I'm not aware of too much on that right now. Well, this, yeah, this gets to my next question, which is, you know, we may see it unfold in real time over the next month and a half. You know, I've, I've been trying to read a lot about the different scenarios in the United States, if there, if there are allegations of voter fraud, or if there are questions about the credibility of the vote, what are the different 
legislative and legal maneuvers that will take place between you know November 4th and and January 20th. Um, and what's really interesting to read from legal scholars and political scientists is a lot of people are basically putting a question mark after protest. And it seems to me that the, the most plausible scenario, and I'm curious to hear what you think is, the idea might be that you could see mobilization in the Republican Party or on the far right when it comes to the actual ballot count. You know, if you think of the Brooks Brothers riot in Florida in 2000, which shut down the recount, where they might actually try to hit election count centers or even legislatures at the state level when they're trying to assign electors and the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But then there's this kind of broader question, which if it moves to January or whoever's decided that the, the broader population, let's say that you know, right-wing militias show up at the state level, they intimidate vote count and, and elected, uh, elected officials, that then there could be a mass turnout of protest on the left or among Democrats. You know, if you think of what happened after Trump's inauguration last time, you know, building on the George Floyd protest, but basically like you'd have a mass movement on the left that may be less focused at the state level and the count and just sort of more broadly on whatever the outcome is, if, if the outcome is a Trump re-election. And then the question is, well, if both sides are kind of turning out and saber rattling, how then does that influence the legislators and the, the judges and, the, and everybody else who's going to have to sort of make a series of decisions that are going to get us to the outcome? Are they going to be influential at all? I mean, maybe they won't yeah. be. Yeah, I mean, this is a really big country and with a really diffuse election administration infrastructure, and, and that can create a lot of problems. I think, I think that there's <laughs> all kinds of nightmare scenarios that we can worry about, and I've spent a lot of time trying to, I feel like it's the number one question I've been getting from um, the journalists that I've been talking to lately is, uh, they all want to know, what's my worst case scenario? And I do think that something like that probably is associated with my worst case scenario, although I can come up with so many of them, uh, as I'm sure you can. Well, give, on... give us one, give us, <laughs> give us a good one. No, but I think that you're pointing to a really good one, which is, okay. I'm actually gonna push back slightly against the question is where I was headed, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, which is, so I think that I am very worried about the polarization, about the violence that we're seeing in the streets, the efforts to bait people into violent conflict in, in, in cities, in residential areas, the efforts by political leaders to turn citizens against one another, I think are really unconscionable um, and are not something that I want to see in, in my own country, uh, much less in any other country around the world. It's, it's known to be dangerous. It's known to be pouring gas on something and then uh, dropping a match and, and walking away and seeing what happens. We know what happens. This is not rocket science. So rather than focus on that, which I think is, is a totally plausible scenario, one I've worried a lot about, but also something that might scare a lot of people out of participating and might be demobilizing and might also take the bait, might, might be taking the bait from some of the, um, some of the actors that I think are really anti-democratic in the U.S. right now um, and that are, you know, anti-small-d democratic, not anti-democratic party necessarily. But I, I, so, so that's the way I wanted to put it back against the question is not to give you all of my nightmare scenarios, but to say basically my, my best case scenario or to, to sort of say that I think there needs to be more attention to the role that regular citizens have in the U.S., that every, every citizen in the U.S. has to put peaceful coexistence and to put the potential for peace, peaceful co coexistence, I guess, on the priority list, to think about 
yeah, to think about how they might play a role in defending democracy above and beyond their own political party, and to think about how, for example, election administrators can be better supported. I think you raise a really good point. They're going to be under a lot of pressure. Uh, there's things that citizen groups can do to create redundancies in the system. You've participated in these in other countries, seen them all around the world. The best way to lose track of who actually won is to have a really corruptible and uh, voting system in which it's hard to uh, go back and figure out what actually happened that doesn't have any redundancies and it doesn't have any margin for both uh, people screwing up and making mistakes, but also people um, attempting to attack the system, as as you outlined. So I'm hoping that, that U.S. citizens will show up for democracy above anything else. I think it's a little bit um, of a, it's a hope that gets me called naive some of the time, but I do think that it is important for us. I think that democracy is, is important for the U.S. to maintain uh, be, because of our composition, because of, because of our past, and because of the ways in which uh, we hope we can go forward together. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's cynical at all. I, I think it's, I think a lot of Americans have become complacent, and I think a lot of Americans are now kind of confronting issues that for some parts of the country they haven't had to confront mm -hmm. or think about for a very long time. And you and I in our work in, in other countries, the, these are things that citizens routinely have to think about or, mm -hmm. or be reminded of. And I think, you know, to the American citizens' credit, I think it's not that it's new, it's just that it's a little bit unfamiliar. Yeah. And going back to basics and reinforcing that, even, the, you know, sometimes maybe it sounds trite or obvious, but it's not. It, it, it isn't, you know, I mean, you and I teach political science to undergrads. A lot, a lot of the stuff that we take for granted really isn't obvious. Right. And right. people do have to be reminded of or they have to at least be conscious of in, in, in coming back to and thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's worth noting that a lot of people in the U.S. have had to be very brave for a very long time in order to exercise their right to vote. And for, for those who have had the luxury to become complacent about that right, it's, it's time for them to pay attention. <laughs> um, but it's Agreed. also something that I think is worth noting, which is just that uh, there, there's maybe something to learn from, from the, the willingness to engage with a process that has so thoroughly uh, been unfair to especially African-American, but many other um, communities in the United States for, for such a very long time. Um, you know, we go back, <laughs> the poll tests, you know, the, the literacy tests before voting, um, all of the Jim Crow era stuff. I mean, it's just, it, it's been um, something that a, a, a lot of Americans have taken very seriously for a long time. I hope that, that they continue to do so. Um, and I hope that a lot of people are willing to renew their attention to how serious it is to defend one's right to vote. Susan, next time we observe an election in Afghanistan, let's ask Afghans if they think Americans are ready for democracy. I think that would be just fine. Uh, I think you know, I think you're right. It's like, it's not even, the, I mean, the, the challenges to U.S. democracy have been ongoing. You know, yeah. every time there's an improvement made, you know, it's not ever enough and, and other things can be undone. And, and it's, you're never sort of there. You're ne you've never kind of made it and then not have to worry about it. You have to keep fighting for it and working towards it every day. Yeah, exactly. I think that emphasizing the process rather than the steady state, you know, that we're, we're not either democratic or, or not democratic, we have to continue to become democratic, continue to push for democracy and continue to push for, um, for individual rights and, and the liberties and the responsibilities that come along with those. So last question. Um, if you were to guess, 
looking forward, you know, what do you think the trajectory of democracy is in the 21st century, kind of globally, you know, given what we talked about with the United States, but your work in the international community, I mean, you know, where, where do you think things are headed and, and what do you think the probability of things getting worse, things getting better? Uh, I mean, I, the, the money's on another cycle, right? Uh, this is what we've seen historically. It's gotten better, it's gotten worse, it's, then it gets better again, then it gets worse again. But I do think that there's some interesting things. If I, if I can just throw at you all my wacky ideas and maybe sure. we'll talk about them very briefly. Um, I, I think that we're, got, we're probably entering a period in which uh, a lot of countries are going to have to fight to maintain democracy. One striking thing um, that is on my mind is just that democracy has never diffused as widely as it has as of just a couple of years ago. Um, and, and so the, the legacy of that will be very interesting. Um, some of the countries that were countries that, that democratized and then backslid towards authoritarianism or returned to authoritarianism um, were countries that didn't have much experience with democratic institutions. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I do think that environmental pressure, environmental stress, and uh, the, the things that we're feeling very acutely on the West Coast of the United States in the last few months, um, uh, but that, that climate scientists say are, are now inevitable and are um, going to be uh, population pressures in a lot of countries around the world. I think it will be interesting to see how democracy deals with that and how democracy deals with um, the increasing concentration of wealth uh, amongst various ever, ever smaller subsets of the population um, combined with the environmental problems. And then um, uh, I guess the, the last thing I'll just raise is, uh, I do think it's possible that we'll see uh, changing geopolitics that have uh, a very big influence on democracy in a lot of countries around the world. If uh, it seems as though we're in or headed for or have been in for a while an era of uh, multi-party or multipolarity, multi multipolar comp competition. And that is something that a lot of folks who study democracy don't pay attention to all of the time. Uh, but if you talk to somebody like Seva Gunitsky or, or, or a few other people, I think that they'll emphasize uh, the role that that might play in how many countries around the world are experiencing democracy. In other words, if China and Russia remain autocracies um, and become ever more dominant globally, or one of them wins out, I think that we're going to face a lot of different incentives globally and different support, different levels of support for democracy around the world, as well as potentially different uh, economic systems to interact with our political system. Great, well, Susan Hyde, thank you so much for joining us. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, James. I did too. I appreciate it.